As AI continues to revolutionize our world, there's a critical conversation we can't ignore. AI safety and security. And that's where HackerOne's AI red teaming comes into play, rigorously testing AI models to prevent them from being misled or exploited. HackerOne employs over 2 million ethical hackers, and 750 of them specialize in prompt hacking and other AI security and testing. So HackerOne isn't just theorizing, they're actively safeguarding AI's future. Just recently, a team unearthed over 100 vulnerabilities in just two weeks. So whether you're at the helm of a startup or steering product innovation at a large company, it's time to prioritize AI security. Visit HackerOne.com slash AI for more. Again, HackerOne.com slash AI. This episode is sponsored by Porkbun.com. Porkbun is a refreshingly different domain name registrar that's different from the other ones like GoDaddy or Namecheap. They've got low prices on hundreds of different domain extensions. They've got everything from .com domains to really cool ones like .pro, .dev, .xyz. Every domain name at Porkbun comes with tons of freebies too, like SSL certificate, who is privacy, DNS, URL forwarding, and hosting trials. Because why pay for things that should be free, right? All these incredible features and tools are backed by incredible support, 365 days a year, and more five-star reviews on Trustpilot from real customers than anyone else. Look, you can get a dollar off your next domain name from Porkbun and see why they're the best domain name register around by using our code. Just go to porkbun.com forward slash rocketchipfm24. That's porkbun, P-O-R-K-B-U-N dot com forward slash rocketchipfm24. You'll save a dollar on your next domain. This episode is brought to you by Gigantic. At Gigantic, you can level up your product skills through live, small group, cohort-based trainings. We're incredibly excited to welcome you to our next cohort of our product strategy training, kicking off in January of 2024. This course will take you through the frameworks that product leaders use at companies like eBay, DoorDash, Groupon, Rent the Runway, in order to scale their teams. It's taught by Ben Foster, a friend of this podcast, who is the former chief product officer at Whoop. So come join us. Go to gigantic.is. That's gigantic.is. And save your seat for our January cohort. Your potential is gigantic, and we're here to help you reach it. Go to gigantic.is to reserve your seat today. Welcome to the Rocket Ship Podcast. I'm Joelle Steiniger. I'm Michael Osaka. And I'm Matt Goldman. Today we talked with Paul Murphy, co-founder and CEO of the app Dots. What do you guys think? Well, I thought it was really interesting to hear about their go-to-market strategy. Um, as someone who's launched apps in the App Store, I know how incredibly hard it is to get to number one, let alone in 23 countries. Um, so it was really interesting to hear even his budgets and the actual strategy that he did step-by-step. That helped them get there. So, what did you guys think? I thought it was really cool to hear how they you know, started the game in BetaWorks, this startup studio, and then they've transitioned it into its own company, which is now a game studio. And Dots isn't the only game they're working on. So, to hear about the process that they use to decide which games to invest in, which games to maybe shut down if they aren't doing right, and how they develop constantly these addicting games was super interesting. 
Yeah, I agree. I think it was really cool to hear about their process、um, that they go through with all these games and kind of applying that back to、um, more of like a B2B app, which is what we're working on, and seeing some of the similarities between a game and a more traditional app. So. Um, yeah, let's get into it. We'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsors. Hover makes purchasing and managing your domain simple and easy. This week, I talked to Max of Why Decision about why he uses Hover. I was using Enom and GoDaddy for domain registrars, and I was looking for something different. I came across、uh, Hover then. What I really liked about Hover was it was easy to use. I had a clean interface. I'm a designer by heart, so I like things like that. Go to hover.com and use the code Satisfied Customers to get 10% off your domain. Purchase today. Alligator. You know what a gator is? Alligator. It's like an alligator. 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 You've heard me rave about Codeship before. It's because they're an incredible team building an amazing product that makes my days happier and my code more reliable. Recently, they shipped an incredible new feature. It's called Parallel CI, and it allows for faster testing than ever before. Early access customers like Product Hunt have improved their development speed tremendously. If you haven't yet, tell your dev team to start a free trial. They have a super generous free plan, and they also offer 20% off three months to all Rocketship listeners. Sign up at codeship.com forward slash Rocketship. For those that don't know,、um, what is Dots? Dots is a game studio. We built the studio out of Betaworks,、um, and our unique position is we're trying to make unique games that have thoughtful design. So, where did the idea from Dots originally come from? It came from my co founder, Patrick Moberg. He was a hacker in residence at Betaworks,、uh, which is a program that Betaworks ran where there w a s、um, about eight people experimenting in different areas. Patrick really wanted to make a game.、Uh, he was particularly passionate about making a game that was inspired by art. And so he,、uh, he took a trip,、uh, visited the hometown of a particular artist, a Japanese artist. Uh, came back with、uh, a concept that was heavily inspired by her art and shared it with me. And we got really excited about it. And he basically spent the next three and a half months creating a, a work prototype、uh, that, we, that we launched、um, to see if people were interested in the, the concept of an art inspired game.、Mm. And then it, it, it took off. And so we decided to scale that, scale that up. Did you kind of? Did you have a feeling before you launched it that it was going to become a number one game? There, during the program, we had eight different projects and we were testing all of them internally. So we could tell what products people were using and how much they were using it. Dots was the exception in that people, people use a lot of the products, but they use Dots a lot. I mean, just obsessively. And my wife was an example. She. She was playing the game. I mean, I've given her products that I've been in tech for a long time. I've, I've always given her new, new products, and she'll be polite about using them, but then stop. <laughs> right. And this was one where it was like I would catch her、uh, before going to sleep or 
uh, when we wake up in the morning playing rounds of dots. And so there was something pretty unique that we felt, I wouldn't say we were, we were confident it was going to take off, but we were confident that there was going to be a lot of people that liked it. Yeah, the, the same thing happened with Joel and I actually. For a few weeks there, Joel absolutely hated dots because I was playing it every day. Every I, time. I didn't even give it a try. I was just like, what are you doing? You're buried in this thing. And then I was like, give me that. And There's then- something weird about the game that Patrick built. It, it had this, this thing that almost felt zen-like, like it was kind of chilling you out. Um, and it was deliberately not aggressive with social or monetization. So you, there wasn't really any penalty for playing a lot. It's not like you were being asked to spend money. Um, so I think a lot, of, a lot of us used it pretty obsessively. But it did have that, that social aspect baked in in the sense that people wanted to share. You weren't shoving it down people's throats, but the way that I discovered it was through people on Twitter saying, you know, I just yeah. scored 700 on dots, and I saw it probably 30 times in the same day. Yeah, I think that's, I that, it, was very, it was a very organic kind of social. There was no uh, viral hooks. We weren't measuring K-factor, all the things that you know, the growth experts out there will tell you to do. Um, there's there is a superset of all of that, which is if a product is good, people will tell people tell their friends about it, and that's what was happening on Twitter and in person. Um, so that that worked really well for the first game. We got a lot of people like yourselves that are maybe more influential. Uh, we're playing the game and and broadcasting it. Some celebrities picked it up, and so there was all these things that led to this this flywheel that got started um, and continued. Um, and then, and then we, you know, we we found a way to grow it from there. So let's talk about some of the early things that you guys did to to help grow it. Yeah, the main thing that I mean, the main thing that we did was we got the product in front of a lot of people, and um, we did that through a few things. Uh, Dig, which is another BetaWorks studio company, uh, they have a spot on their homepage that they. It's a it's a really cool it's a really cool thing. They basically it's it's for sale, so you buy it. It's apps we like, but not everyone's eligible. So a lot of people say, "I want to buy that spot on Dig," and it, the way it works is instead of the ad sales team, it's not really a team; it's a person. But instead of the ad sales saying yes or no, editorial has to say yes or no. Does this fit in with Dig? And so as a result, it's a pretty high valued spot, and it's it's if you kind of accepted into it, yeah, you pay a little bit of money, but um, it's got this sort of virality kind of baked into the ad unit. So we put it on there. Um, we got, I think, about 10,000 people uh, pretty quickly started playing the game, and then it started spreading. So that was the, the sort of the first thing we did. We did give some test builds to people like Michael Arrington, um, other influencers that are close to Betaworks, and said, hey, just try this out. Tell us what you think. They got excited about it, so there was there was a little bit of paid advertising um, in there through Dig, and then a little bit of influencer marketing that we did. And about how much uh, paid, if you don't if you don't mind, like if if I had an app, like what would my budget be on that? It depends on what you want the impact to be. So you know, if you're looking at Candy Crush Soda Saga, uh, you know they'll come out of the gate spending seven figures a day. Right. Right. So that's one end of the spectrum. And you would only do that if you know you're going to make that money back. The other end of the spectrum is what would it cost me to launch an app today and just have it, give it the chance to become popular. And I think today, which was different than two years ago when we launched Dots, I think you should reasonably expect to spend somewhere between twenty and $100,000 to give the game enough 
give it enough juice to get in front of enough people that it has a chance of taking off. Great. Um, and so what was the, so you gave it to some key influencers. What was the, what was the next step? Well, the nice thing is after it got traction, um, Apple reached out to us and said, hey, we'd love to talk about featuring the game, um, which, as we all know, is the, is the big prize. Yep. So, so you know, once, they, once they came on board, um, there was two things that were really awesome. The first, uh, probably the best thing they did was they, they, they put someone on it from their side who was giving us feedback on the game. You know, think about this, think about that. Um, so we took on a lot of their feedback, and then we rolled out an update, I think it was about a month later, um, which had all of their changes incorporated, fixed some bugs, uh, introduced a few new bugs. But we pushed that update out, and they featured it, and that you know that got us another wave of of downloads. Um, so we we kind of we had this first wave, which was like I think the product was so new and fresh that it just took off. The next wave was with the help of Apple, um, and then the next big thing we had after that was our Android launch, and we managed to sort of stack these three events pretty close to each other. So it kept that buzz going um, pretty well for the first six to eight months. So going back to uh, having Apple come on and give you guys feedback, was that just totally out of the blue they approached you or had you been kind of developing a relationship with them for a while hoping that something like that might present itself? We had definitely been in contact with them, but the one thing I think a lot of people criticize Apple for being a black box. You don't really know how the, the company works. Um, but on the flip side is they're very consistent. So they, you know, they've got um, an approach uh, for looking at possible features. They've got an editorial team that reviews them. Um, it's not that hard to find out who the editorial team is for your category. You know, we found out who that team was. We said, we'd love for you to consider it. And then they did. And once, once they got excited about it, then there's sort of two levels within Apple. There's the editorial team, and then there's the developer relations team. And their developer relations people are very busy because there's so many apps getting submitted every day. But, you know, they'll, the way at least I understand it is they'll make bets on, you know, call it 50 to 100 different apps in a category that maybe aren't top apps but have potential. And they'll give them some very, you know, light guidance and feedback. So we, you know, we sort of made it into that into that list after we launched Dots, and that's when the feedback started coming. And it wasn't that, you know, it wasn't rocket science what they had suggested to us, but it was just helpful to hear from Apple the things that they thought we should do. Like a, a good practical example was they said, your game is being played all over the world. You know, here are the top 10 languages you should localize for. Um, so we, we got our game localized for those languages. And since then, you've gone on to be top charts and, you know, several different countries, right? So Dot, the first game um, hit number one in about 20-something countries. Um, and that's, I think that it's, a, it's something that we're very proud of, uh, it's a, but it, it is also a moment in time. So it, you know, for a period of time, we were the number one free app downloaded in, in all those countries. Um, obviously, those charts are changing all the time. It's like the Billboard 100. Um, the Two Dots, which we launched this past summer, actually hit uh, top in uh, over 70 countries. So we learned a lot about how to, you know, all of our learnings for the first year of running Dots kind of came into Two Dots and we launched that game. And we just got every channel lined up from the start. 
and we had the game localized. We had gotten lots of feedback and testing, and so we just came out of the gate uh, with a little bit of love from Apple, which was awesome, um, some good press, some paid marketing, and then a, a cross-promotion from our dots to two dots. And all of those things helped us hit that you know, top position in so many countries. And I think we kept the number one spot in the U.S. for over two weeks, um, which was we were just kind of super excited about. Yeah. So you guys started with Dots. You went on to raise a bit of money. You launched two Dots. And now you described to us that uh, Dots is kind of like a, a beta works of its own where it's a game studio spinning out these games that are different. Uh, can you talk about the process that you guys use for creating these new games and what you guys Yeah, have so we have, um, it is very similar to Betaworks and specifically to gaming. So instead of creating startups, Betaworks I think of as a startup studio, we're a game studio. So we're producing games and titles. They're not, each of them don't become their own company, but they do become their own property. So it's not di- not dissimilar to a Hollywood studio producing films. Um, so the, our creative process is, um, it's it's pretty tight. Uh, it's been going on for a while. It's hard to see as a consumer because you only see two games in market. We actually have several games under development um, in parallel. And so right now we have about four games that are at different stages of our development process. And it's a pretty simple process. We We have a creative director or a game director that leads a team. They usually have an idea. And they start experimenting with that idea. They might be someone like Patrick that can do the design and development themselves, and so the team is very small. Um, Or it might be someone that's more of an experienced game designer but less of an experienced engineer, and so they might pair up with one or two other people. And they'll take about a month uh, to basically experiment with what we think of as the, the core mechanic within the game, and that's the thing that you're doing every second within the game. So in... Flappy Bird, it's tapping the screen. In Dots, it's connecting you know, the circles so that you make a square. Um, you know, it's different for, for, for every game, but that core mechanic is kind of the essence of the fun behind the game. And so they spend a period of time experimenting with mechanics when they think they have it. There's a set of people that will kind of go thumbs up, thumbs down. Is it fun or not? Very much from the gut. Uh, if it's thumbs up, then it goes to the next stage and they start to build out the game. Uh, if it's thumbs down, the team will go back and try something different. It's like a celebratory moment either way. Um, no one feels they shouldn't feel bad if something gets doesn't get greenlit, but um, it's a very iterative process. No, I, was, I wanted to see how much of your time are you spending between um, the R&D process of discovering a new game and the process of continuing the kind of the dots franchise and keeping those um, moving forward. Yeah, it's a great question. So the you know in gaming, there's this this thing that people call live operations, and it basically means once a, once a title has been released and it's doing well. Well, actually, let's let's back up. So if you release a title and it and it doesn't do well, then uh, if you if you care about your resources and making sure that your attention and your capital and your people are working on the best possible things, then you're going to want to sunset that product um, if it's not doing well. And um, Supercell, which is the gold standard in gaming today, or one of them, you know, they just sunset a product uh, called, I think it was called Spooky Pop, and it was a game that they had released. And 
it got through all the way through their development process. They released it, and it wasn't hitting their key metrics, and so they, they sunset it. Um, so that's one approach. The other is you move it into live operations where you're basically saying, uh, we want to keep feeding this. We want to develop the game further. We want to create new content. We want to get a community team on it. Uh, the third option is harvest, and that's where you've got a game that kind of has has taken off a little bit on its own. It's got the potential to make you some money, but maybe not a lot of money, and you want to feed that, but not feed it too much. And so you'd move that into like a harvest mode. Uh, so the first question we have to ask ourselves once we launch the game is, which of these buckets does the game fall into? Um, two dots is in the live operations mode. It's uh, our our monetization of the game has, has has only improved. Our attention keeps getting better and better as we release new content. Uh, the game is growing, and so we're in investment mode in that title, which means we've got a team that does support, a team that does uh, just creative content for the community. There's uh, folks that are just creating uh, new levels and new game mechanics within within the game. It means we're exper- experimenting with uh, partnerships. So we're we're doing a partnership with Tencent to launch the game in China. Um, we're going to be doing uh, other things with different uh, different partners to kind of generate some publicity. So that's that's kind of the live operations. And a game should only really, if we're doing our jobs right, hopefully we only release games that make it into live ops mode. And then how do you, um, so if something goes into, say, Harvest, um, what do you, how do you decide who works on it at that point? Or is, it, is that kind of a part-time um, position for some people who are still doing kind of the core R&D for a new title? I think it, it definitely depends on the title. The, I think the thing that you want to get you want to quickly get your most experienced people onto something that has the potential to be a breakout hit. And so what that means is, you know, maybe a game that's in, like Dots Classic, you could say the first game is in harvest mode now. We're, we're, we're making improvements to it, but we're not investing 10 people into the game. Okay. Um, and so it's a great project. We have a, a really amazing intern uh, that's working with us this semester. And he's rewriting and... and uh, and refactoring a bunch of stuff in Dots Classic. It's a great project for him to get his head around the, our code base, how we operate. He understands our values and principles in the studio. And you know, maybe when he's done with that, he'll have an idea of how we can improve Dots, or maybe he'll move on to work with us on a new title. How do you guys approach monetization on these projects? Um, is that an early, early conversation, or... Is that something that comes later as you're getting closer to launch to figure out what's what's the trigger? So there's definitely a few schools of thought. There are some people that believe that, and I'm talking specifically for gaming, there's some people that think that you can create a really engaging, addictive mechanic. Uh, if you can do that, then there's always a way to monetize, whether it's through advertising or it's through some life mechanic like Candy Crush or something else. Um, that's one school of thought. The second school of thought is the best monetizing games have monetization embedded in the mechanic. So the, the monetization actually is a core part of the gameplay. And if you take it out, it's no longer fun. So mm. poker is a great example. It, you know, Playing poker without anything at stake is kind of boring. Um, whereas playing solitaire without anything at stake is, is still fun. Some of the top grossing games out there, uh, like Clash of Clans is a great example Monetization is core to the mechanic. You really can't pull it out and and still have that game be fun. 
Um, so what we try to do is is a balance. We're we're trying to we want to make money from our games, and games should be able to make money on day one. Uh, but we don't want to be so aggressive that we piss people off or make them upset that they bought something. Like it should be the kind of thing where you, you go in, you buy something, and you're delighted with what you've bought, and you're incur- you then want to do it again. So that's that's our goal. And do you see a lot of uh, repeat purchases? Are, are people is there kind of like a cycle that you're trying to hit with those? Yes. Yeah, definitely. Once people convert, um, and I think this is, I, I sort of give all credit to this to our, our game designers. They've created products in the game that are fun to buy and then fun to use. So in our, for our games, once people convert, uh, they continue to spend money in the game. Um, but we're, we're very uh, intentionally not aggressive about uh, getting people to convert to paid. The game can be played through end-to-end without paying any money. And that was a that was a design decision for us. Very cool. Yeah, and it, it seems like that's where the gaming industry is going. Some do it differently. Yeah, I, some... So there, you know, most of the most of the games that allow you to play through end-to-end without any purchases are premium games. You know, spend three or four bucks. Monument Valley is a great example. Well, they have a paid content pack you know, Monument Valley can be, you know, you spend a few bucks, it's totally worth it because the quality of the game is unbelievable. Um, and you just play through it and it's fun and you're never asked to spend more money unless you want to get the next pack. Um, whereas other games, you know, they'll present you with a paywall in five minutes and, you know, their their job is to hook you really quick and convert you very quick and then they will keep uh, trying to extract cash from you throughout the game. So it's a different school of thought. So you've had the unique experience of going through a startup studio and now building a game studio. Is there anything that you think startups could take from what you've learned out of building these games and you know building multiple games and having to make the hard decision of which ones you continue with, which ones you invest in, which ones you shut down? What can people focused on one product take away from I think it's the, the thing that I learned personally when I was – working at Betaworks and now working at Dots that's consistent is make products that people want that you want to use. And I think, you know, there's been situations in the past for me where I've been part of teams where we've been building products for an audience that we didn't, it wasn't us. And we're thinking people will use this or they must want to use this. And I think the thing that I found, it's never failed me, is if I take this thing away and I want to use it and I continue to use it, it's a high bar, but it's a good sign. And so I wouldn't bet on some unknown person being your customer. I think making things that you want to use yourself is a great, uh, pretty low risk, low risk strategy to building a, a company. How do you know when, I mean, with that, how do you know when you really need it and, and when you're kind of convincing yourself that you need it? How, where's the line there? I mean, for us, it's a little easier because, you know, we all have free time. You know, I, I have a 20-minute commute on the subway. Um, I've got to do something during the subway ride. And so if I gravitate to a game that's in development here, uh, I've got like 30 games on my phone. So mm-hmm. if I tend to go back to things um, that, that we're building here, I feel good about that. If I have to force myself through a playtest session, which we also have, um, and then I don't go back to it, then that's a really strong sign. Um, for utilities, I think it's definitely totally different. You know, it's 
it's it's hard to know when uh, a utility is truly needed versus nice to have. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think it's one of the hardest things in in business in general. But uh, yeah, yeah. So well, thank you so much for for coming on and sharing this with us. Um, where do we keep up with you and and dots and your future developments online? Yeah, I think the the best thing to do. We've actually got a pretty awesome uh, Tumblr, so it's blog uh, blog that we play dots dot com or our website. Um, we have um, we have more games coming out. So and they're they're games that don't necessarily use the dots mechanic. So hopefully people uh, will check them out and give us honest feedback as to whether or not they they like them. But we want to show show folks that we can do more than just connecting dots. <laughs> <laughs> well, awesome. Thank you. Cool. Thanks, guys. Looking for more entrepreneurial content? Check out April 1st's Zen Founder, where they talk about finding a work-life balance with your partner. You know you're not talking, right? Yeah, I know. <laughs> I don't know what to say. It's like an issue they're facing, but it feels so like cheesy to say that. Will emailed us shortly after we began the podcast to ask a question about how to best talk with his wife about carving out time in their schedules for his startup. And as anyone who's tried to do this with a partner knows, it's a real balancing act. And so we're going to start today with uh, interviews with both of them. And we'll wrap up by Sherry and I discussing our thoughts. And to give you a little preview, we're going to talk about some strategies that we think would be helpful for them in terms of improving communication, reworking the current assumptions of their work-life schedule. Go to zenfounder.com or search zenfounder in iTunes. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Rocket Ship Podcast. If you enjoyed it, we have tons of other awesome episodes on our website. Check them out, rocketship.fm. And make sure to check out our app discount section where we feature discounts from amazing companies like Treehouse, Wistia, Moon Themes, all giving you exclusive discounts for being a Rocket Ship listener. So go to rocketship.fm forward slash essentials. Thank you.